prophet Ezekiel and said, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found no one. What a sad commentary. Tragic. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I looked for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one, said the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, the prophet spoke to King Asa and said, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. With those scriptures in mind, we are beginning a new series today, Studies in the Book of Nehemiah. And I've entitled our first study today, A Man God Can Use, or A Man Who Is Useless to God. I've given you two papers this morning. One are the notes that we will consider in our study of Nehemiah chapter 1. And the second is a timeline, a chronology, that gives us a big picture of what's happening when we open the pages of Nehemiah's writings. So let's take a few minutes and gather the big picture together. Let's look beyond what is happening when we read the words of Nehemiah. God specifically chose Israel. He first of all chose a man named Abram, who lived in the Ur of Chaldees. He called him out. And Abram left everything to follow the Lord. And because of his willingness to wholeheartedly follow, God made a covenant with him. I will make you great, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. You will be the blessing of many nations. As we shared last week, Abraham's descendants ended up in slavery. But it was part of God's plan to demonstrate how he chooses and how his mission, his mission is one of redemption. That is the mission of God. He redeems. And so out of slavery, God redeemed the nation of Israel. And when he brought them to Mount Sinai, he said, you see how I have carried you on eagle's wings. I chose you not because you're the most numerous nation, not because you are the greatest. I chose you because I love you. I chose you because I wanted someone who would be a set-apart people through whom I could reveal myself to the rest of the world. By the time that we get to that point, God has revealed himself to numerous people. God has chosen them as the instrument through which he could reveal his redeeming purposes. 
almost without exception, they failed. Moses spoke some very sobering words when he reiterated Deuteronomy, the second repeating of the law, to the generation that was now to go in after their parents had failed. And after recounting the law, he said to them, but I know that when you get into the land that God is giving you, your hearts will turn away from the Lord. And sure enough, they were no sooner settled in the land than they began to do exactly what God told them not to do. Don't build partnerships with the people around you. They worship idols. Your hearts will be seduced away from the Lord your God. Don't intermarry. You will be marrying idolaters. Don't wonder, hmm, how do they worship their gods? What are their customs and their way of life? Stay as my set-apart people. But they didn't do it. Generation after generation, century after century, that was the story. They chose to follow their own hearts. And that ultimately led them to compromising their identity. And instead of being the holy people of the Lord, they became unholy like the nations around them. God had warned them before they went into the promised land, the land is going to vomit out the people who are in it because of their iniquity. Take care that it doesn't vomit you out also. You see, a land can only bear so much sin. It is not an intangible, an inanimate, to the extent that we think it is. God warned His people not to shed blood because blood defiles the land and there's no way that you can remove that curse from it. But again, the people of God chose to compromise their identity and their calling instead of being a kingdom of priests and a set-apart nation. God sent His prophets to warn again and again. Time would go by, the law of God would be completely forgotten, the temple would be abandoned. No longer would the priest and the Levites be supported in their spiritual work. The temple would become just a place that accumulated trash. Then a king would come, he would discover the law, he would begin to read it, he would be convicted, revival would come, reformation and restoration of worship. And then once again, the people would go back. They would return to their own ways. They would begin to serve the gods among them. One such godly king was Hezekiah. God blessed the reign of Hezekiah. God used him greatly. There was no such time with such great spiritual fervor and commitment as under the leadership of Hezekiah. But then came a day when God sent Isaiah to say to Hezekiah, set your house in order, you are going to die. And Hezekiah pleaded with God, don't let me die. I don't want to die yet. Larry Norman wrote a song that said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. All want to go to heaven, but Lord, I don't want to die. And so God granted Hezekiah an extension of life. But it was during that time that his son, Manasseh, was born. And then an envoy of Babylonians visited Jerusalem. And Hezekiah took them into the temple, something that God had expressly forbidden. Don't bring idolaters into my holy place. 
but he showed off to them all the treasures that were in the temple. And Isaiah confronted him afterwards and said, you have done a terrible thing. And for this reason, the day is going to come when the treasures in this temple are carried off by the Babylonians and this place is destroyed. Hezekiah very arrogantly thought in his heart, well, at least it's not going to happen while I'm still living. Manasseh, the son that was born during that time, turned out to be horrible. He sacrificed Hezekiah's grandchildren to the god Molech, burning them alive as an offering. He engaged in the most hideous and violent acts of idol worship. And God caused him to be taken captive by the Assyrians, the dominant power at that time. He repented while in captivity. And God restored him. He cleansed the land. He restored the worship of God again. But the people had gone too far. And again and again, succeeding kings would be warned by the prophets to turn back to the Lord, but they would not. And finally, God said, enough, time is up. And because of the sin of Manasseh, I cannot forgive, and I cannot let it go on any longer. You will see the timeline as you look at the paper that I created for you. When Nebuchadnezzar became king, he invaded Judah, the kingdom of Judah. It was predicted by Isaiah. It was prophesied by Jeremiah. And with that first invasion, he deported a number of Jews. Daniel was included. Sometime later, there was a second invasion. And he deported Jehoiachin the king, along with others like Hezekiah, the best craftsman, the elite of royalty and politics in Jerusalem and Judah. And then there was a third invasion because King Zedekiah, who had repeatedly seen the judgment of God, still chose to rebel. Isn't it astounding how human nature never learns its lesson? It's incorrigible. Unless we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, human nature is incorrigible. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's army surrounded Jerusalem and besieged it for one and a half years. The people ate anything that they could get their hands on, including their own children. And when Nebuchadnezzar's armies broke through, they rampaged the city and destroyed it. The temple was destroyed. The walls were demolished. The gates were burnt with fire. There were very few people left. Jeremiah sat down and began to write his lament. My heart is broken. Has anything ever happened to any other city such as happened to my city? My tears flow day and night. Our children have no future. The babies starve in the streets. The children die in their mother's arms. I look for hope, but there is none. The tragic thing is it did not have to be this way. But God has always a God of hope. And you see, God is always pursuing his purposes. Remember that. Jesus said, my father is at work to this very day. God is always at work pursuing His purposes. Don't 
Forget it. It's not about what is happening right now in my life. It's about what God is doing. Jesus said, so I watch my Father to see what He is doing, and then that is what I do. So God continued to be at work. Through Jeremiah, who prophesied the destruction, God also gave a promise, after 70 years I'll restore my people. The Babylonian Empire was defeated by an alliance of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel, who lived through the politics of Babylon, and then became part of the political system of the Persian Empire, was reading the Word of God one day, Daniel chapter 9. He read that Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years, and the people will go back. And he began to intercede and cry out to God. God, forgive us of our sin that brought us here. Keep your promise and restore And God began to work. You see, God is always at work. Almost 200 years earlier, Isaiah had given a prophecy concerning Cyrus, who was not even born. But God called him my son. And though he does not acknowledge me, I will raise him up to restore my city and to bring my people back. And in his very first year, the Word of God says that in order to fulfill the prophecy spoken by Jeremiah, God moved on the heart of Cyrus the Great and caused him to issue an edict that allowed the Jews to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so as you and I turn to Ezra, chapter 3, we find the story of the rebuilding of the temple. It's the very first thing that they did, was begin to restore the place of worship. But the work languished. There was outside opposition. People got distracted building their own houses and building their own future. That's the time when Haggai and Zechariah delivered their prophecies. And God spoke and rebuked his people, saying, How is it that you are investing all of your efforts in your own house while my house is neglected? Sometime after that, there would be another decree that was issued by Artaxerxes, this is the stepson of Queen Esther, who God raised up for such a time as this, to deliver the people of Israel from a genocidal plot by a man named Haman. And now her stepson issues an edict, and Ezra the scribe leads a second group of people back to Jerusalem. And now we come to Nehemiah's story. Nehemiah chapter 1. Open your Bibles and follow as I read. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, In the month of Kislev, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. That was the capital of the Persian Empire. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are not going well with those who returned to the province of Judah. 
They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants, O Lord. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Now let's summarize three critical life truths before we begin to look into Nehemiah's memoirs. Number one, as we have said earlier, God is always at work pursuing His mission of redemption and the revelation of His name. Did you catch those words that Nehemiah prayed? They are, in fact, not his own words. He prayed, the place that you have chosen for your name to be honored. Those were the words of God speaking as he gave direction to the people of Israel before going into the promised land. There is a place that I have chosen where my name will be honored and where people can come to know me. That was Jerusalem. And the temple. God is always at work. God's mission is to redeem people. And God's pursuit is the glory of His name. We sang about it this morning. The name of God is what people need. We don't need to know how to make more money how to be more successful in life. We need to know the name of Jesus. People serve a thousand different gods. They need to know the true God. They need a revelation of who He is. God is always looking for those whose hearts are aligned with His and whose highest priority is to fulfill His ambitions. God is always looking for people who have His heart. And He is looking for people for whom the reason they live is to fulfill the ambitions of God, not their own. And thirdly, God will always be fully committed to the success of those who are available and who will step out in faith. Do a study about the favor of God. God is fully committed to give favor and success to those who will be available to Him 
and who will step out in faith. We are introduced to Nehemiah's memoirs with this statement. Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. For Hebrews, as for many of you, the meaning of names is important. Hakaliah's name means Yahweh is hidden. Yahweh is hidden. Hakaliah was probably living during the time of the deportation. Or else he was born shortly thereafter. In the midst of all of that chaos, destruction, and exile, he was named by his parents. Yahweh is hidden. Where is God? The world is falling apart. And we are being torn out of our homes and our land. And exile in a foreign land. Yahweh has hidden His face from us. But Nehemiah's parents evidently were stewarding in their hearts the promises that God had made. I will not be angry forever, but I will restore. And therefore, when their son was born, they named him Nehemiah. God comforts. Hallelujah. Nehemiah gives us just one autobiographical detail concerning his life there in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. He said, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. We aren't giving in, given any other details about him. But that tells us much. Now, the position of cupbearer might not be significant or meaningful to us as modern readers. So we dig below the surface to understand why Nehemiah would have shared that one detail about his life at this point. There was always intrigue in the palace, always danger, always threat of assassination. Read the Old Testament. Read the story of the kings, especially the kings of the northern kingdom, Samaria. Someone was always bumping someone else off, slipping into the palace, driving a knife into the king while he slept, a coup taking over. For that reason, the cupbearer was the last line of protection for the king. He ensured that the meal was prepared for the king's enjoyment, that he would delight, his palate would enjoy. He would sit back and say, that was one good meal. You don't want to make the king unhappy with something that doesn't taste good. But he was also responsible for ensuring that no one could poison the food or the drink and bring about the king's death. A cupbearer was very close to the king. He was not merely a servant, was not a guinea pig, just to take a drink of the wine. If he doesn't die, it's safe to drink. No, he was much more than that. He had to be a person in that position of proven integrity and unquestionable loyalty. It was also a position of rare status and honor. Persian art from that period depicts the cupbearer as being second only to the crown prince in standing by the side of the king. The cupbearer was a trusted confidant. He held a position of significant influence, and it was very lucrative. 
If you made it that far, you were one wealthy dude. So he was trusted, he was influential, he was powerful in the kingdom, and he was wealthy. In other words, he was on top of the world. You could not go any higher at all. He had it made. But he tells us that his brother Hanani and some other men traveled from Judah back to Susa. He asked them, how are things going? Thirteen years earlier, under decree of the same king, Ezra had taken a group of captives, the second group to go back. How are things going? What is happening? They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been burned by fire. In our day and age, we could not de defend a city by building walls. Aerial combat, missiles, drones render obsolete any kind of fortifications of that nature. But understanding walls and gates is important for us. Walls indicate boundaries and protection. Broken walls indicate vulnerability. Walls indicate boundaries and protection. Broken walls indicate vulnerability. A city, an organization, a church, a home, an individual cannot endure or be effective without intact walls. Walls must be intact. There must be boundaries. There must be protection. There must be security from vulnerability. Gates indicate access. And gates need to be monitored. You need to regulate who comes in, who has access. Many of you have a card at work, something that identifies you, you hold it to the card reader, the door opens, and you can enter. You have a gatekeeper on your phone. It might be a passcode. It might be your fingerprint. It might be facial recognition. But you use it because you don't want everyone to have access to what's on your phone. You want to keep it secure and protected. You see, gates are important. Gates determine access, but you don't leave the gate wide open. We don't leave our front doors wide open. We close them, we secure them, we lock them. We don't want just anybody coming in our house, do we? We determine who can come in and who must stay out. And the fact is that every one of us must be wall builders and gatekeepers. We need to build the walls of our lives, the walls of our homes, the walls of our church. We need to be gatekeepers. Remember the psalmist who said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the righteous. He understood the significance of gatekeeping, doorkeeping. Every one of us is called to be a wall builder and a gatekeeper. This applies 
to our lives. It applies to being viable and useful in the kingdom of God. I have a question for you to consider. What are our walls and our gates? Where have we allowed walls to be broken down? Where have we given access? Every one of us has five gates that we carry with us all the time. It's our five senses. Hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, and feeling. Friends, in today's age, if your kids have a smartphone and your kids are on social media, your kids have viewed pornography. It is a fact. I won't ask you to respond, but it's there everywhere. How are you monitoring that gate, parents? Is it wide open? We are so attached to our devices that some of us come into church and we can't even put the phone away to worship the Lord. We are scrolling through things. We are playing games. We are in the house of God, in the presence of God. Malachi, you will note on the chronology that I gave you, rebuked the people who had come back and rebuilt the temple. God said to them, you compromised your worship of me. We compromise our worship of God when we do things like that. There's a whole host of ways that we do not monitor the gates of our lives or build boundaries so that we remain God's set-apart and holy people. So many ways in which we make ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. We are the body of Christ. We are called to represent the purposes of God. We are called as partners in God's redemptive work. How are we maintaining the walls and the gates of this portion of the kingdom of God that He has entrusted to us? So for your assignment, think on that question, what are our walls and gates? The second half of this chapter is Nehemiah's prayer, and it is a revealing prayer. Jesus said, a person speaks and acts out of what is stored up in his heart. Again, Jesus said, a person speaks and acts out of what is stored up in his heart. So a person's prayer and prayer life reveals whether they have the thoughts, the mind, and the heart of God, or whether they are self-focused and oblivious to God's purposes. When we look at Nehemiah's prayer, we see three things about him. It reveals him to be a man who, first of all, is deeply connected to the heart of God. How do you know if you are deeply connected to the heart of God? You grieve. You grieve over sin. You grieve over people who do not know Jesus. You grieve over the church if it's not effective in doing the work of God. The very first instance for the word heart that is found in the Bible is concerning God's heart in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. The NIV reads, his heart was filled with pain. When you look at what people are doing, does it make you mad? Does it make you frustrated, irritated? 
or perhaps do you want to partner in what they're doing? The only right response that reveals our heart is connected to the heart of God is when we grieve over the evil, the sin, the failure that we see around us in society, in the church. You will note that the people I pointed out to you as I went through the chronology, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, every one of them, when they began to pray, they grieved and they cried out to God for forgiveness of sin. Their hearts were deeply connected to the heart of God. Listen, friends, God can't use you or me for any eternal and worthwhile purpose unless our hearts are connected to His. Part of hating evil is that we grieve over sin. The second thing that reveals the heart of Nehemiah is that he was studiously aware and connected to the promises and purposes of God. I say studiously aware on your notes because when you read Nehemiah's prayer, you recognize that he knows the word well. There are passages from Deuteronomy that he speaks almost verbatim. That has been centuries earlier, but he knows the word. Remember our Advent study concerning Mary? Mary was a 13-year-old, illiterate young woman. She did not own a Bible. She did not even read. But she listened to the word of God when it was spoken at the synagogue. And she pondered things in her heart. That was her habit. She was like the man of Psalm 1. Her delight was in the law of the Lord, and in His law she meditated day and night. And when she spoke, when she praised, when she worshipped, her words were rich with the Word of God stored up in her. Listen, you can't pray effectively if you don't know the Word of God. The Word of God reveals the purposes of God. Nehemiah knew the Word of God. He studied it. He was familiar with it. Like Daniel reading the scroll of Nehemiah and knowing now is the time. And thirdly, Nehemiah was fully available to be a difference maker in the work of God. He was not bound by his position, his wealth, his status. He was fully available. Who is the person God can use? God is looking for those who, first of all, are brokenhearted because his work is not going forth as it should. People who are brokenhearted because his work is not going forward as it should. God is looking for those who will recognize their failure to obey God and confess their disobedience to His commands. And God is looking for those who believe that God's gracious hand and favor will enable them to see His work go forward. So let me ask you, have we been obedient or disobedient to the commands of our Lord? It's a question to consider individually, but let me ask you, as a church, have we been obedient or disobedient to the commands of God? And that is the fact, dear friends. We are deeply disobedient to the commands of God. The foremost command of Jesus is, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What have we done to reach people in our own community? Where God has placed us, what have we done? Have we made any disciples? 
Have we even made disciples of our own children who are being a witness for God and who are saying to God, here I am, I'm available, use me, send me. We don't want to be a people who are disobedient. But if we recognize that we've been disobedient, then we need to allow the Holy Spirit to bring a brokenheartedness that will cause us to cry out to God, God, have mercy on us. You and I do not want to stand before the Lord as unworthy servants who have not fulfilled His command to be His witnesses. This is our Jerusalem out here around our church. You have a Jerusalem in your community. Baltimore City is our Judea and Samaria. Yes, we support our missionaries by giving an offering. And maybe we remember to pray for them during the month. but that does not rise to the level of Jesus saying to us, go into all the world and make disciples of everyone. We need to recognize our failure to obey God's commands. We need to confess our disobedience to His commands. Now here's a wonderful truth. God's gracious hand and favor will be upon the person who steps out in faith. That is something that we see throughout this work of restoration, where God is keeping His word to return His people. And the city where He has chosen for the honor of His name, for the revelation of who He is, to be rebuilt. It wasn't in their power to do so. They were exiles. They were captives. But God moved on the heart of the highest authorities to decree their release. Read them. Not only does He decree their release, He gives letters saying, whatever you need. The governors are supposed to supply it to you. If you need wood, if you need this, if you need that, I'm making sure that all that you need, that is favor. You can listen to a televangelist talk about favor. And you will walk away with the wrong understanding of God's favor. God's favor is for those who will step out in faith. to do the work that God has called us to do. So, you and I need to ask ourselves, what is God's highest priority? It's the redemption of people. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. The redemption of people is God's highest priority. In light of His highest priority, have we been obedient or disobedient? How obedient have we been? In every generation and every church. In every generation and every church, God is asking, who will go for us? Who will stand in the gap and rebuild the wall? Will you be nowhere to be found? I looked, but I could find no one. Or will he hear you saying, when he asked this question of Isaiah, here am I, send me. You see, in God's eyes, that is the difference between being a person of success 
or a person of failure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation that we find of you, your purposes, your heart, wherever we open the Bible, wherever we read. Today, right now, in this church, you are asking who will step up to build the wall of righteousness? Who will be a gatekeeper in the kingdom of God? You are asking, who will go for us? Who can we send? Father, I pray that you will not find that we are nowhere to be found. Or that we are too busy like those that you called, Lord Jesus. We have so much to do. Surely there's someone else who can do it. Father, I pray that you will find among us here at Moravia people who grieve because your work is not going forward, people who repent, and people who say, Lord, here am I, send me. Only your Holy Spirit can accomplish that. But only your Holy Spirit can accomplish it if we have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. I pray that we will. Now, thank you, Father, so much for your wonderful presence and your ministry to us today. And thank you for your word. May we hide it in our hearts May we retain it and put it into practice so that the enemy does not steal it, but instead it produces a rich harvest of righteousness. And I commit that to you in the name of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.